It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of child sexual abuse, child sexual abuse materials, and murder. Researching and thinking about the Delphi case requires us all to think about dark subjects most people are not familiar with. Topics such as internet predators and child sexual abuse materials. We feel that it would help us all understand better what happened in Delphi back in 2017 if we were able to get more context in those areas. So we have decided to begin a series of interviews with experts in order to get the benefit of their knowledge. These experts have all spent their careers studying these matters. We are beginning this endeavor by talking with David Finkelhor. Dr. Finkelhor has been researching issues involving child victimization, child maltreatment, and family violence since 1977, which is even before there was an internet. 
He is the director of Crimes Against Children Research Center, co-director of the Family Research Laboratory, and a professor of sociology at the University of New Hampshire. That is an impressive resume, but what first caught our eye about Dr. Finkelhor was what his research has shown about who poses the most danger to children. Many of us believe that the greatest risk comes from strangers, but Dr. Finkelhor's studies suggest otherwise. His findings argue that the sort of people who are likely to prey on children online are not the types who tend to commit physical violence or murder. At the end of the interview, we will have a few words about next Tuesday's episode, as well as a bit of news about the future of the murder sheet. But first, if Dr. Finkelhor's research holds true, then what does that tell us about the Delphi case? My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, The Murder Sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout Season 1 to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We're the Murder Sheet, and this is The Delphi Murders on Internet Predators, a conversation with Dr. David Finkelhor. put it as simply as possible. One major focus of Dr. Finkelhor's research has been on who we should be afraid of. Who is most likely to victimize our children? When I was growing up, I remember being warned repeatedly of so-called stranger danger, that the people most apt to do me serious harm were those who were unknown to me. Dr. Finkelhor has worked hard to challenge that perception. Now, I think that we spent the last quarter century of the 20th century, trying to persuade people that they were more at risk at the hands of acquaintances and loved ones than at the hands of strangers. That strangers were, you know, kind of the stereotype of who a criminal was. You know, a street thug, a child molester, you know, in the park, or, a, you know, somebody breaks into your house and steals your... Steals your goods or throttles you or and just you know I think one of the big uh, revelations of crime epidemiology was the recognition of how stranger danger wasn't really the big story Um, and so that's really it's been an effort to kind of get people to believe that and act on it because you're fighting against some very strong, I think, uh, sociobiologically planted fear 
tropism, you know, that sort of direct you towards that person that you don't know as the dangerous one. And it has to do with the fact that we have these complex relationships with people who are acquaintances and loved ones. You know, we arouse a lot, lot more motivation for them to harm us, but we also have to maintain a relationship with trust and of trust and reciprocity with them. So it's just hard for us to think about those relationships, I think, very uh, dispassionately. So there are other factors too, which is, you know, that, that you know, police themselves, I think, prefer the stranger danger model of crime too, because uh, those are easier cases in some, in some ways. And uh, that people are more likely to see better policing as the solution to stranger danger crime than they are to, say, domestic violence, where you think, well, maybe we got social workers, we got psychologists, we got advocates, crisis counseling and shelters. Let's take a moment to really emphasize Dr. Finkelhor's thesis. He is arguing that we and our loved ones are most likely to be harmed, not by strangers, but by people already in our lives. This is not a pleasant concept to try to accept. We want to believe that we can trust the people we know, our families, our friends, the teachers and coaches who work with our kids. But that is not always true. Dr. Finkelhor is also saying that the police prefer the idea of stranger danger because if it is real, then that is a problem that police officers can solve. You put more police on the street, and it becomes harder for a stranger to abduct and molest a child. But police cannot always stop the people we've already allowed into our lives from harming us. Any answer to that problem would have to be far more complex. If Dr. Finkelhorst's ideas are correct, we wondered how he works the internet into them. So, I, with you know, the whole internet crimes against children thing has brought the stranger danger narrative back into prominence. And I think there's just a lot of evidence that it's driven, that it's not really accurate. So this story could, you know, in my view, reinforce people's original instructions about it. That's, that's why we're interviewing you, I guess, because, you know, having the academic criminology, sociology perspective, you can possibly bring our readers more of a context of like this is unusual you know that's kind of what we're trying to get at is 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 sort of using the stranger the mm -hmm. stranger there are two there's two there's two issues in this particular case one is i mean it's not that stranger solicitation and grooming the teenagers is rare it happens quite a bit just not as much as people are, that they already know but it's but it's it's a fair dynamic but but that it ends in a homicide is extremely unusual. This is interesting. Dr. Finkelhor agrees that there are people out there who use the internet to arrange sexual meetings with underage children. But, he says, it is very rare for these encounters to end with the offender killing the children. So, what does that say about Delphi? One theory of the crime is that Libby and Abby were killed as a result of Libby's interactions with the Anthony Schatz persona created by Kegan Klein. But Dr. Finkelhor is suggesting that a person who uses social media like Kegan Klein did 
is not generally interested in murder, that he wants something else. Well, I mean, I, I actually don't. It's something I should have a count of, but it's just, you know, it's, it's just not typically, you know, as we say in that paper, you know, these perpetrators are interested in developing voluntary sexual relationships or sexual performances or the sharing of sexual images by the young people that they're in touch with. And the people who kill in the course of sexual assault are more typically what we call um, socially incompetent offenders. If you have the social skills to engage in luring and seduction and, you know, then you, you don't need to use violence. But if you don't have those skills, then, you know, you get more of the kind of grab someone, sexually assault them and kill them so that they won't tell on you. But, um, but the internet has particularly selected for people who have those have those social social interaction skills. If you're a socially incompetent offender, you tend to sort of, you're more a street, more like a street criminal or the, uh, you're looking for an opportunity to just find someone and grab them. But if you, the internet requires more skills because the, the kind of, well, the kind of skills that would really require you to lure someone to come actually come out and meet you you don't know are quite complicated. Dr. Finkelhor is saying that a predator akin to Kagan Klein had social skills that the killer of Libyan Abbey likely lacked. This may be part of the reason why police told Kagan Klein in the interrogation transcript that they do not believe he was the killer. But it seems clear that they believe he knows who the murderer was. We decided to get back to more general questions about internet predation. I, I thought it was very interesting in the 2008 paper on online predators and their victims, the kind of comparison of most of, or you know, the majority of these predations being more akin to a statutory rape model than, you know, a stranger danger kidnapping yeah. rape model. And I wonder if you could speak to that and also share if there's other new wrinkles to that that you guys have sort of figured out since since 2008 well so you know the, the, the main some of the our main thinking about this is that it's not identity deception and uh, that that is the primary uh, facilitator here the primary facilitator is that adults both known adults and people that are met online are playing on young people's actual interest in romance and sex and flattery and being attractive and having boyfriends and things like that to get these kids interested in actually doing something sexual with them because they, they, they flatter them, they have resources that they can lavish on them because they you know, have some skills or some experiences that the kids are interested in, can offer them something. So a lot of these cases you know, are... are that sort where the kids are, you know, there, there is deception in the sense that these people, these offenders, can make claims about loving them, wanting to be with them, and wanting to advance their career and things like that, which are typically lies. Just to, but they aren't, you know, I'm a 14-year-old boy. So, you know, we get these kids who do things. I mean, I think the big thing that's changed is that maybe when we were doing those papers, a lot of it was going to meet someone 
had been flattered into you know having a trip and but now a fair amount of the for some of the I think I can't quantify it yet we have some studies that will update us on this but a fair amount of it is convincing kids to send sexual images or engage in sexual performances online because uh, that feels like from the perpetrator's point of view that often feels like it's easier and and less risky. I saw in the study and and just, you know, common sense, you know, basically the stranger danger messaging seems to really negate natural adolescent interest in romance and sex and feeling desirable, you know, which is of course developmentally appropriate at that point. And I'm I'm curious, you know, in the view of you uh, in your view and in the view of your fellow um, you know, your colleagues on this, is this how can parents, guardians have have more developmentally appropriate and effective conversations with their teens about this issue without you know yeah, well that that's a that's a that is a really good question and I'm afraid that the practice in this area the messaging in this area has not been well developed uh, and it is still largely don't go to meet strangers don't go to don't have conversations with strangers. Don't give out personal information. I mean, clearly, the the more useful information is about what a healthy sexual and romantic relationship is all about. Why having relationships with older partners is not only against the law, but is not likely to work out. Doesn't work out. Involves various kinds of risks. What kinds of ploys and persuasions? these offenders use to lure the, to, to attract the kids and so they can have signs sensitive sensitive to those kinds of things how to empower friends uh, to who may know about what's going on take action to protect their their friends from these relationships you know some of it I mean, we can't rely entirely on parents to do that these involved conversations with parents can be very about and feel like they don't have the skills approach and that maybe kids don't want to talk to their parents about. But we should be doing that at least in sex education classes. But these are hard conversations to script and to know how to formulate in ways that they will be heard and that can navigate the challenges of resistance that schools and parents in various segments of the community have about talking about sex and romance in schools or with teenagers. So it's, it's, it's a big challenge. And especially when it's easier to fall back on the on the stranger danger model where it's just, you know, don't exactly. basically don't do the internet equivalent of taking candy from people you don't know. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. 
It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20 percent of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20 percent of your weight in one year in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's ro.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Of course, talking about the sort of people who engage in internet predation only covers half the story. We must also try to figure out what sort of children are most likely to fall victim to these predators. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, you know, in terms of the victimology of what we see here with um, underage victims of online predators... Are there certain characteristics that come up again and again um, when it comes to who these kids are and what might put them at risk in particular for being preyed upon by an Internet predator? Yeah, there's a lot. There's a fair amount of research on that. So, I mean, it, it, it's the usual profile, but it's not, you know, it's not determinative. There are kids from, so, so you know, the main things are kids who are bullied, kids who have low self-esteem, kids who've been victimized sexually before kids who have a poor relationship with their parents who are emotionally needy or poorly supervised. Those are all things that put kids at risk. But there are also plenty of examples of kids who don't have any of those things who do get suckered. And, you know, some of it has to do with just kids meeting someone, a coach, a teacher, a scout leader, you know, person that they know at church, um, who, you know, they're infatuated with, they, they find, you know, and then this person has a, a you know, sort of gets, realizes that they can um, groom this child into a relationship. And so those kinds of things happen and don't necessarily entail a, a child with a kind of adverse background. Right, right. That makes sense. And as for the characteristics of the offenders, you already mentioned one. Oftentimes we're seeing people who are good at communication and for, you know, have the, you know, sociability aspect. Are there other sort of characteristics speaking generally across these these types of offenders that you and your colleagues noticed or kind of looked out for in this? There are various subtypes. Um, I like to distinguish what I call predators 
predisposed. My, my third category is kind of peculiar. I mean, the, the, the predators are people who actually have a almost an orientation towards young people as their preferred sexual. They may be just doing a lot of this. They're the, the predisposed are people who don't have that particular uh, orientation, but but have other kinds of needs. They're depressed. Their relationship isn't going very well. The current, you know, the partner of their marriage isn't going very well, and they something happens that puts them into, into contact with a child or a youth who seems kind of like they're vulnerable. And this can happen, you know, in a lot of venues, including online. And then the peculiar just has to do with it. Seems to me there are some situations where you know there's normal, healthy interactions between adults and kids, but the adult then sort of somehow recognizes, oh, this can, this could easily turn into a something more. If they're not, you know, if they don't have good values and self-control, they take it there. And I'm curious, just with the, you know, you mentioned how rare deception-based internet predators uh, are, or adults using the internet to try to have sexual experience with children, I guess. You know, is that I wouldn't say that I wouldn't say there's no deception, but I think that they've focused on the wrong elements. It's not that they're claiming that they're kids when they're not. It's not that they're claiming that they just want to trade baseball cards when what they want to do is have sex. In order to have someone engage with you, you especially if you want to meet them, you're going to have to present to them the fact that you're an adult and that you're interested in sex. But uh, but there are other deceptions, you know. They say they're handsome. They say they have a modeling agency. They say they they really care about. Them. They want that. They want that. They want to have a, lo- a long-term relationship. We decided to ask Dr. Finkelhor about a detail that may be present in the Delphi case. I'm curious, you know, and this is something that actually touches upon our case. Was would it have been rare, or was this something that you saw as, as far as a subtype of? people adults working together to do this to children or was it typically solo offenders you know it's mostly solo um there are uh sex rings and people who kind of form into groups online and share exploits and images there are some sexual abuse cases where family members are recruited to share their children that can happen online sometimes or where a man and a woman team up to sexually recruit, you know, sort of like the Epstein, the Epstein dynamics. That can happen online. I imagine that it, those it, cases are more rare. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, they are. And I'm curious, you know, in terms of the research, you know, in instances where children are victimized, whether it's a an in-person sexual encounter or they're enticed to send nude pictures or, or whatnot, what, are, what is the impact uh, of, of online sexual victimization on underage children? What, you know, what are they looking at after that? Well, I mean, there are a variety of elements that, you know, what I call traumagenic dynamics. So, you know, they're not, it's generally pretty harmful. There's an element of betrayal, it's often an element of kind of trauma to their Sexual self-esteem and sense of humiliation and shame is also a an element of uh, disempowerment. And when you know when th- things begin to run awry, 
they feel like they they can't control what's going on. The police get involved. Uh, the parents get involved. You know. There's a, there's a fair amount of stigmatization that they have to deal with. The feeling you know that can continue for a long period of time. And uh, we talked about some of the myths about about this subject, and you know, obviously, the media is a huge part of proliferating such myths and, and sort of setting a narrative. So in your expert opinion, how could the media do a better job of covering this very serious subject uh, in a more accurate way and in a way that could actually possibly help people understand better the real dynamics at play in, some, in, in the majority of these cases? Well, let me just say that I think the media has done generally a very good job in the whole awareness building around child sexual abuse and and that that has been, it has been very salutary it's, you know there's been there's been a lot of coverage of survivors and the stories you know and a lot of the previously hidden dynamics about you know abuse by teachers or priests or or even other other youth have gotten a fair amount of coverage and you know the, the diversity is better understood than it used to be. So I think part of the problem here is that the people who are working on the on the crime itself, including people in law enforcement and people in child protection, have not understood the dynamic with entirely themselves. But as I, I guess as I said originally, I do think that if more the online abuse portion of the problem were better understood as involving many acquaintance perpetrators as involving more statutory sex crime-like dynamics. And important to say that those aren't, that doesn't mean they're less traumatizing or less illegal, but they're just different from the uh, ones that, the, the crimes that occur as a result of physical coercion. And uh, if there was more emphasis on not the deception as being the crucial not the identity deception as being the crucial kind of mechanism for recruitment, but the playing on kids' interests in sex and romance and uh, affirmation. I'm going to describe another detail to you about this specific case that we're working on, just to just to see you know what you think and if there's anything borne out by your research that sort of touches upon it. One thing that we've gotten from our sources and law enforcement in this case is. Basically, that there was this, as I mentioned, this gentleman, Kagan Klein, messaging a lot of different girls, trying to get them to send him nude pictures. And but basically what police seem to think happened here, possibly. And it's, again, not been adjudicated. So I'm sort of just telling you this. But this this Kagan Klein had a pretty violent father who had a history of, you know, physical abuse and, and some charges around that. Some of the language that Kagan was using when typing and reaching out to these girls was sort of mentioning like, oh, would you want to meet my dad, basically? You mentioned sometimes in some cases families sort of doing things. And I guess, I mean, I'm curious if you could speak to like the, the role of families, if this, sometimes families work together to try to prey on children online, or is that pretty rare? Yeah, I'd say that, that's kind of rare. I mean, the, the only thing, that, the thing, the main thing that you get up that, that, that flags to me is that the violent criminals, very frequently have uh, histories of violent up, very violent upbringing. You know, it has damaged their ability to regulate their own 
impulses that was created the idea that violence is what you do to somebody who has betrayed you or needs behavior needs some kind of punishment and, and so that, that that seems more consistent with the fact that you have a violent criminal here yes yeah the, and it and it results in a homicide as opposed to what a typical internet predator encounter might we would like to thank Dr. Finkelhor for taking the time to talk with us for this episode. And now we would like to share a few words about the future of the murder sheet. We started the podcast to focus on restaurant-related homicides. As time passed, we added coverage of Delphi to the mix because it is such an important story here in Indiana. In recent weeks, we have gotten an increasing number of emails from listeners suggesting we cover other cases cases which have no relationship whatsoever to restaurants. We have found that many of those cases sound very interesting and deserving of more coverage. We have decided then that the murder sheet will no longer focus exclusively on restaurant homicides, but will instead cover a wider variety of cases. Naturally, we will still cover restaurant cases. They will remain an important part of the DNA of this program. But we will no longer stop ourselves from covering a deserving case simply because it did not take place in a restaurant. Rest assured, however, that we will continue to bring you the fundamentals of our program, no matter what kind of case we're covering. We view our podcast as a platform for our journalism. That means we will continue to emphasize original reporting, smart analysis, and interviews with experts. We will be fearless in our coverage and we will strive to discover the truth and shine a light on horrific cases. Please join us for our next regular episode on Tuesday, where we will be sharing some behind-the-scenes details of the Delphi investigation. And thanks again for listening to The Murder Sheet. To our surprise, we've gotten a number of requests from people saying they would like a way to help financially support our efforts with the show. So, if you are interested... We are relaunching a Patreon page, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. Join us there for two live video question and answer sessions each month. You can ask us anything, suggest new cases for us to look at, or even offer ideas for new leads for us to follow. If Patreon is not your thing, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murdersheet. Thanks for the interest. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at MurderSheet, and on Facebook at MSheetPodcast, or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to The Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.